I've often wondered whether evangelism is easier in a non-Christian culture like Seattle, a post-Christian culture, or rather a non-Christian culture, we might say more like China, or a post-Christian culture like Seattle than it is in a Christian culture like Springfield. Now, having never lived outside of the Bible Belt, I I can't speak authoritatively as to what it's like to live and to minister in a place like China, like Seattle, where almost no one claims to be a Christian. And I intend one day to ask Stuart Bell, what are the major differences between evangelism in northwest Arkansas where he ministered for 20 years, and Seattle, where he's been for the last two years. How does evangelism in each of those contexts compare? Which setting does he prefer? I imagine the answer he would give is that each context, whether it's Centerton, Arkansas, or Seattle, Washington, each context presents its own unique challenges. In a non-Christian or post-Christian culture, one has to contend with competing worldviews, radically different assumptions of truth, and negative and misinformed stereotypes of what Christians actually believe and how Christians actually live. You cannot walk into a coffee shop in Seattle, Washington and assume that anyone there believes that a transcendent yet imminent God created the universe, that the historical Jesus was the incarnate Son of God who bears any resemblance to the biblical Christ, or that the Bible itself is in some way the Word of God to man. All of which you can still safely assume to be the understanding of at least most people who frequent coffee shops in Springfield, Missouri. Most people in the Bible Belt still believe in God as creator, Jesus as savior, and the Bible as divine revelation. On the other hand, in Seattle, you don't usually have to contend with people who claim to be Christians, but who don't read their Bible, haven't attended church in years, couldn't tell you the gospel, and whose lives are not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Which is easier? I don't know. What I do know is that ministering in the Bible Belt requires that one spend An inordinate amount of time differentiating between what is true faith and what is false faith. We live in a culture in which the majority of people think that they are Christians and most of them are very much mistaken. Dean and Sarah, in his new book, The Unsaved Christian, from which I read a chapter to our church on uh, Wednesday night, addresses this very issue. He writes in the introductory chapter that cultural Christianity admires Jesus but doesn't really think he is needed except to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. The Jesus of cultural Christianity is a type of historical imaginary friend with some magic powers for good luck and sentimentality. Amazing grace is a song known from memory, but why that grace is amazing cannot be explained. The God of cultural Christianity is the man upstairs, 
Whether or not he is holy and people have sinned against him is irrelevant. Words such as hope, faith, and believe hang on the walls of living rooms as decorations, but the actual words of God only come around when Psalm 23 is read at a loved one's funeral. The author then proceeds to examine eight different types of cultural Christian, providing strategies for engaging and evangelizing each. Now, the problem of cultural Christianity is nothing new. Every evangelical church which tries to minister in a majority Christian culture has faced the same dilemma. In the 16th century, when the reformers rediscovered the gospel and in so doing realized that most people living in Christendom, that is Christian Europe, did not know the gospel, it became necessary for them to define true faith and distinguish it from its many counterfeits. The reformers identified three essential components of true saving faith. First, they said true saving faith involves knowledge. True faith involves true gospel content. Just as Paul said, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? To be saved, one must hear the gospel, and the gospel that they hear must be the real gospel. Faith is not true if it believes false things. True faith knows the true gospel and not some false counterfeit. But there's a second component, and that's assent. True faith acknowledges that the true gospel is, in fact, true. It approves of this knowledge. It says, I believe Jesus did live, and he did die, and he did rise again. I believe that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I agree with the gospel. But the first and second components are not sufficient without a third, which is trust. True faith depends upon, relies upon, and trusts in Christ as he is revealed to us in the true gospel. And it's only with that third step, the step of trust, that faith becomes personal. It's only with that third step that true faith, saving faith, is formed. Wayne Grudem writes, quote, in addition to knowledge of the facts of the gospel and approval of those facts, in order to be saved, I must decide to depend upon Jesus to save me. In doing this, I move from being an interested, or disinterested as it may be, observer of the facts of salvation, of the teachings of the Bible, to being someone who enters into a new relationship with Jesus Christ as a living person. We may then define saving faith in the following way. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. Michael Horton agrees, writing, Given definition by doctrine, faith is nevertheless directed toward a person. The triune God as he has revealed himself in Christ as our Redeemer. 
It would be mere assent to say even that Christ died for sinners generally without recognizing that he died for me. It is not merely acknowledging the truth of Christ's person and work, but receiving and clinging to Christ himself. The Heidelberg Catechism from the 16th century famously states, True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Listen, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of of Christ's merits. I'll give you one more historical commentator on the faith. We'll go to Luther, who wrote in the preface of his commentary on Romans that faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all his creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Ghost in faith. Hence, a man is ready and glad without compulsion to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything in love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. Thus it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat and light. He then instructs us and exhorts us to pray to God to work faith in us, else we remain forever without faith, whatever we think and do. So taken all together, evidently the question is not, do you believe in Jesus? That question is almost meaningless in a Christian culture because it is too easy to misunderstand believe in terms of mere knowledge and assent to the truths of the gospel. Rather, the important question is, do you trust Jesus as a living person? Do you have a living, daring confidence in God's grace to us in Christ such that you would stake your life on it a thousand times, says Luther? Does your faith make you glad and bold and happy in God, ready and glad without compulsion to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, and to suffer everything in love and praise to the God who has shown you this grace? This is true faith, and this is the subject of this morning's message. In Romans 4, Paul is defending the doctrine of justification by faith alone, a doctrine that he has been expounding upon ever since he summarized it in verse 28 when he said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, in order to defend this doctrine, which for Paul is the very center of the gospel, he's been using the example of Abraham, the Old Testament patriarch, the founding father of Israel. And he's doing so because it was widely held among first century Jews that Abraham was justified by his own righteousness, by his own faithfulness, by his own obedience to God. 
And so if Paul can prove that Abraham was not justified by his own righteousness, faithfulness, and obedience, but rather through faith alone apart from works, then he will have gone a long way towards establishing his case. So Paul's been working through this argument throughout chapter 4, and we've been following him at every step. First, Paul proved that Abraham was not justified by his works, that is, by his own righteousness, but rather through faith in God's promise. And in order to establish this, if you look up at verses 1 to 8, Paul made two points. First, he said that if Abraham was justified by his works, then Abraham has something in which to boast, verse 2. And for Paul, that very notion is just absurd on the face of it. Paul had such a radically God-centered view of reality that it was inconceivable to him that man would come into right relationship with God in any way other than by sovereign and unmerited grace which totally excludes all human boasting. Then Paul points to the scriptural text. He points back to Genesis 15.6 which says that Abraham believed God and faith was counted to him as righteousness. And he argues from the nature of works and wages in order to show that a man cannot relate to God on the basis of his works because God simply will be in no man's debt. You cannot work for God because God will have no employees. Therefore, if a man is to be justified at all, he must be justified by grace alone, through faith alone. He must come to God, not as an employee seeking his wages, but as a child receiving a gift. Paul then emphasized that same point, that same principle from the testimony of David in verses 6 to 8. So Abraham was not justified by his works. But then Paul says, neither was Abraham justified by his circumcision. In verses 9 to 12. In fact, Abraham was justified some 29 years before he was circumcised. Therefore, circumcision could have played no role in his justification. Rather, Abraham received circumcision, Paul says in verse 11, as a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. And in this way, verse 12, Abraham is the father of all those who are justified by faith, whether or not they are circumcised. So Abraham was not justified by his works, his righteousness. He wasn't justified by his circumcision, that is, his his adherence and observance of religious rituals. Well, neither, Paul says in verses 13 to 17, was Abraham justified by some kind of law. It was not through the law that God promised to make Abraham the heir of the world, verse 13, but rather through the righteousness of faith. Paul says this is because the law can only bring the wrath of God to sinners. Only faith can bring the blessing of God. Verses 14 and 15. The law operates on the basis of merit, but faith operates on the basis of grace. Verse 16. Furthermore, Paul says, if the promise came through the law, it would only be available to the Jews, but God promised that Abraham was going to be the father of a multitude of nations. So Abraham couldn't have received the promise on the basis of a law. So throughout Romans chapter 4, Paul has just been defending his doctrine of justification by grace alone apart from works, a step at a time, knocking out out every defense that that any kind of self-righteous argument would make. 
He said Abraham was not justified by his works, by his righteousness, by his circumcision, by the law. Well, then how was Abraham justified? Well, the answer has been clear throughout the chapter. Verses 3, 9, 11, 13, 16. He's been repeating it over and over again. Abraham was justified by faith. But what kind of faith? That's the subject Paul addresses next in verses 18 to 22. And this topic has extraordinary relevance to us, not just because we live and minister and we seek to evangelize in the Bible Belt where the distinction between true faith and false faith is so important. It's relevant to us because if we want to be justified like Abraham, if we want to become heirs of the world like Abraham, if we want to be blessed as Abraham was blessed, we have to have the faith of Abraham. That is why it depends on faith, Paul says in verse 16. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the question is not, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in God? Do you believe the gospel? For Paul in Romans chapter 4, the question is, do you share the faith of Abraham? Do you have the same kind of trust in God that Abraham had? Well, what kind of faith is that? What was Abraham's faith? Correspondingly, what is that kind of faith by which we may be justified? What kind of faith receives the promise? What is that faith which saves? That's what we're concerned with this morning in the last section of Romans chapter 4, where Paul highlights three characteristics of Abraham's faith, three attributes that must mark our faith as well if we are to share Abraham's faith and thereby share Abraham's blessing. First, Paul says, true faith is anchored in the promise of God's word. Paul points out that Abraham's faith was anchored in God's promise. Faith must have an object. It must have something to grip, something to hold on to. And that's why I like when I'm talking about faith, I like the metaphor of an anchor. When a boat drops anchor, that anchor must reach to the bottom of the sea floor. It cannot just be suspended aimlessly beneath the ship, wafting on the ocean currents, or else it's not going to hold the ship in place. And this idea of the anchor of our faith is very biblical, in fact. It comes from Hebrews chapter 6, where the author of Hebrews applies it to the very case of Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, the author says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope which is set before us. We have this oath as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. In other words, the word, the promise, the oath of God in which he swears by his own character, his own nature, his own name, that is the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. That is the object of our faith. And this is precisely what lies behind Paul's thought in verse 18 of Romans chapter 4, where he says that in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as or according to that which he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Rearrange the words a little bit, and here's what Paul is saying. Abraham was enabled to hope against hope because God had told him, so shall your descendants be. God had promised him. The reason Abraham hoped against hope was because he had been promised by God that he would have offspring that would outnumber the stars. And for Abraham, this was not some shot in the dark. This was not a blind leap of faith. This was an unpromise, a promise from the unchangeable God for whom it is impossible to lie. Now, the longer that I live, and I'm sure you've experienced the same phenomenon, the more cynical I get about the trustworthiness of people's word. Many people, none of you of course, seem constitutionally incapable of keeping their word. They say they'll show, and they don't show. They say they're going to do it, and it doesn't get done. When when people, and I'm, I'm dead serious when I say this, generally not members of this church. But when people ask to meet with me for counsel, I usually give them a 50-50 chance of actually showing up. Those odds are born out of long experience of sitting around waiting for them to come, and they don't come. Therefore, it's exceedingly difficult for me to hope against hope based upon the word of man. But God's promise is different. His word is sure and certain. His yes means yes. His no means no. When he says he's going to show, he shows. When he says it's going to get done, it gets done. God is not man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? says Numbers 23, 19. So Abraham had a promise from the God who cannot lie and the God who always keeps his word. And that's what enabled Abraham's faith to be so strong. It was anchored in the sure and steadfast promise of the unchanging and unlying God. That's what true saving faith does. That's why true saving faith can hope against hope. That is, believe when all circumstances, 
all that I can see point in the contrary direction. Because true faith is not based upon a feeling, it's not based upon an experience, it's not based upon a memory. True faith is anchored in the sure and steadfast promise of the unchanging and unlying God. Second, Paul emphasizes that Abraham's faith rested in the omnipotent power of God, not in the impotent power of God of his own flesh. Look with me at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Paul is picturing Abraham's faith kind of like a balance scale. On the one side, Abraham placed God's promise, right? I've made you the father of many nations. On the other side, Abraham placed the human assets which he possessed, which Paul says amounted to basically nothing towards the fulfillment of that promise. Now, I want you to look at the way Paul describes Abraham and Sarah's physical condition. He says, Abraham, being about 100 years old, and I apologize to any of you who are creeping up towards that, but Paul says Abraham's body was as good as dead. Right? The Hebrew, or not the Hebrew, the Greek word there is necrosis. His body was necrotic. He says Sarah's womb was barren. And again, Paul doesn't use the usual term for barren. Instead, he uses the same word, necrosis. Sarah's womb literally was dead. Abraham's body was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. Dead. They're all dead. There's no life coming out of Abraham and Sarah. Now, obviously, Paul is utilizing a bit of hyperbole, but he's doing so to make a theological point. What he's saying is, Abraham and Sarah could contribute nothing towards the fulfillment of God's promise because they were dead. Therefore, if God's promise was going to come to pass, if Abraham was in fact going to be the father of many nations, it was going to have to come about through the sovereign, gracious, life-giving power of God. But that's exactly the kind of faith that Abraham possessed. Verse 17, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and who calls into existence things that do not exist, like a baby out of Sarah's barren womb. Abraham believed that God was able to raise the dead and to call into being things which do not exist. Therefore, Abraham believed that God was able to bring life out of his own dead body and to call forth nations out of Sarah's own dead womb. So Abraham, thinking about that balance scale, he placed the promise of God on the one side of the balance, and their human circumstances on the other side of the balance, and God's promise carried far more weight. 
True justifying faith, the faith of Abraham, the faith that receives the promise, that receives the blessing, that inherits the world, the faith that justifies is a faith which trusts not in one's own power to accomplish the promise, but rather trusts in the power of God who raises the dead. Third, Paul emphasizes that Abraham's faith was not some vague, vaporous hope. Right? I hope God will keep his promise. Rather, Abraham's faith was an assured confidence that God both would and could do what he had said. Look at verses 20 to 22. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In these verses, Paul is emphasizing the quality of Abraham's faith. And the overarching characteristic that he emphasizes is that of assurance. Abraham's was a confident faith. It was an assured faith. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So the faith of Abraham is an assured faith. But at this point, I think we can anticipate a possible objection coming from anybody who's actually read Genesis. (laughs) Does Paul's glowing testimony of Abraham's exemplary faith actually match the Genesis narrative. Because when we look back at Abraham's life, is it really fair to say that we see a man unwavering in his confidence in God's promise, a man who was fully convinced that God was both able and willing to keep his word? What about Genesis 17? When God promised that Sarah would be blessed and that she would become the mother of nations and kings. And in verse 17 of chapter 17, it says that Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Does that sound like no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So 29 years after the initial promise, Abraham is still struggling to believe that what God had said would come to pass would in fact happen. It doesn't sound like unwavering faith. It doesn't sound like a man who is fully convinced. So what is Paul talking about? Why does he give such a glowing report of Abraham's faith? Evidently, while justifying faith is a confident faith, while it is an assured faith, it is not a perfect faith. 
30 years passed between the original promise and its fulfillment. And during those 30 years, Abraham's body and Sarah's womb only grew more and more decrepit. Abraham's faith during those years underwent serious trials. And yet it remained. Not only remaining, it, Paul says, grew strong. Abraham decided not not once at the age of 70, at the initial revelation of the promise, Abraham decided day by day, moment by moment, that in the face of all evidence to the contrary, he was going to rest his faith on the truth that God was both able and willing to do what he had promised. And this gave glory to God, says Paul. God would not have been glorified through the human fulfillment of the divine promise. God was not glorified when in a moment of faithlessness, Abraham and Sarah schemed to beget an heir by Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. That act of faithlessness brought God no glory. In fact, it brought incessant heartache upon the people of God for centuries, nay, millennia to come. Rather, God was glorified when Abraham trusted him to fulfill his own promise according to his own power. And that is what faith does. And it was for that that Abraham's faith was counted to him for righteousness. So true justifying faith is not a perfect faith. But it is a progressive faith and it is a persevering faith. It's a progressive faith in that it grew strong. And it's a persevering faith in that it remained. For those 30 years of barrenness, it remained. For decades after, it remained. When God told him, take your only son whom you love up to that mountain and kill him, it remained. That is the mark of true saving faith. And in spite of Abraham's momentary lapses, in spite of the, of the human frailty and the, the timely weakness of his own faith, when Paul looks back at the totality of Abraham's life, he says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise. But rather, he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that God was able to do what he had said. Which means that if you have the faith of Abraham, when God looks at the totality of your life, even with those lapses of frailty and faithlessness, if your faith is a faith that progresses, if it's a faith that perseveres, at the end of your life, God will say, no unbelief made him waver concerning my promise. But he was fully persuaded that I could do what I had said, and he brought me glory. It's interesting that the verb that Paul uses in verse 20 when he says no unbelief made him waver. It's the same verb that James uses in chapter 1 and verse 7 to describe the double-minded man. You remember that passage? James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But 
Let him ask in faith with no doubting, no wavering. Same word. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says that the doubting man, the wavering man, the double-minded man is one who is constantly waffling back and forth between faith and unbelief. The winds of circumstance blow him this way and that. He trusts when things look possible. He doubts when things look impossible, which only demonstrates the fact that his faith was not in God, but rather in himself. That's not the faith of Abraham. The faithful man is not one who has no doubts. The faithful man is rather one who believes in spite of his doubts because his eyes are fixed on God and not on himself. The faithful man says, if this thing is going to happen, if you're going to save me, if you're going to keep me, if you're going to make me an heir of the world and bring me into your everlasting presence blameless with great joy, you're going to have to do it because I can't. The faithful man, the man with the faith of Abraham, is not a man with the perfect faith. Rather, he's a man who gets up morning by morning and says, I choose today to trust your promise, to believe your word, to rest in your grace and in the omnipotence of your sovereign power. And the faithful man continues to do that day by day in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the trials, until he sees God's promise fulfilled. That's the kind of faith that justifies because that's the kind of faith that gives glory to God. So this is true justifying faith. This is what it means to share the faith of Abraham, to walk in the footsteps of of the faith that our father Abraham had, verses 16 and verse 12. So now, Paul's proven his point that Abraham was not justified by works, verses 1 to 8, nor by circumcision, verses 9 to 12, nor by the law, verses 13 to 17. Rather, Abraham was justified by a faith that is anchored in the promise of God's word, trusts in God's power over human ability, and grows and remains a confident assurance. Then, in verse 23, he turns to the application to his own readers in Rome, and therefore I turn to the application to those of us in First Baptist Nixa. This is where the last four weeks, really the last five weeks, have been heading. We've proven that if you're to be justified, you've got to be justified by faith. And the faith which justifies is the faith of Abraham. Now it's time to press that truth home. Because this is not some archaic argument over doctrinal abstractions. This is about the question of your eternal standing before God. You stand this morning in exactly the same position as Abraham did 4,000 years ago on that night out on the hills of Canaan. 
when the dazzling panoply of the heavenly host were radiating from horizon to horizon. That's you this morning. And I want you to put yourself out on that, those starlit hills. Can you picture it? Now, just as God came to Abraham that night with a word of promise, an unbelievably gracious, impossibly spectacular promise, look towards the heavens, Abraham, and number the stars if you can, so shall your descendants be. Just as God came to Abraham with that promise, so God comes to you this morning with an unbelievably gracious, impossibly spectacular promise. And here it is, beginning in verse 23. Look down there with me. But the words, it was counted to him, that is to Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, to whom it will be counted if we believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. So here you are. You are Abraham. Your life has been spent in Babylon, worshiping the gods of your fathers, bowing before the idols of men's hearts. But it's all been vanity, just the the fleeting pleasures of empty promises. But you've heard the whisper of a summons. Go out from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house. Leave behind their gods and come to a land that I will show you, for I intend to bless you. And you've answered that summons. And you've come to this church in the hope that there may be something here that will satisfy the longing of your sick and saddened heart. And it's here that God is going to meet you. This morning, in this text, in these words, God is taking you outside to look at the stars as it were. But instead of the splendor of the heavens, which merely declare the glory of God, God is showing you this morning, He is pointing you this morning to the glory of God incarnate in human flesh. That is Jesus Christ. The Son of God made man. And he shows you two images of Jesus this morning. The first is that of Jesus beaten and bruised and bloodied and suspended from a wooden cross with iron nails, a crown of thorns upon his head. And God says to you, look, look at my son. I delivered him over for your trespasses. Your sins deserve death. Your sins deserve wrath. Your sins deserve judgment. But he has borne your sins, and he has suffered my wrath, and he has been executed in my judgment in your place. The second picture is that of Jesus, this time risen and radiant with glory, exalted to the heavens, a crown of gold upon his head. And God says to you, look again to my son. 
I have raised him from the dead. I have exalted him to my right hand because the debt of your sin has been paid. My holy wrath has been satisfied. Justice has been done. And now righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life and the new heaven and a new earth are yours. You are Abraham. This morning, God takes you to the hills and he says, look, number the stars. Look to the cross and look to the empty tomb. Look to the crucified Savior and look to the risen and exalted Lord. Look and believe. Hope against hope that God is and that he loves you, and that he has saved you through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for your trespasses. He was raised for your justification. That is your promise in which you must anchor your faith. So do not weaken in faith as you consider your own sins, your own unworthiness, the deadness of your own heart. Rather, believe in God who is able to give life to the dead and to call into being that which does not exist, namely, faith and life. And do not waver in unbelief concerning the promise of God, but rather, grow strong in faith. Right now, right here, dare to believe, dare to trust, dare to give glory to God, dare to be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised, namely, to save all who call upon the name of Jesus. This is your Genesis 15, 6 moment. This is your Abraham moment. Look up at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the crucified Savior delivered over for your trespasses. And look at the risen and exalted Lord raised for your justification. Look and believe and your faith will be counted as righteousness.